It's Tuesday, July 13th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The Free Britney movement is getting some supporters on Capitol Hill that couldn't be further from each other ideologically, all pushing for reviews and more oversight on guardianships and conservatorships. Lawmakers from Elizabeth Warren to Ted Cruz are interested in shedding light on the system, but the federal government's role in these programs is limited and largely left to the states. Still, after Britney Spears' testimony last month, there have been more calls for reform. Victoria Colliver, California healthcare reporter at Politico, joins us for more. Next, some master's degree programs at elite schools aren't paying off. At Columbia and other top universities, these programs are failing to generate enough income for graduates who are grappling with hundreds of thousands of dollars of federal loans. A recent analysis shows that graduates of the Columbia Film Program have the highest debt-to-earnings ratio among graduates of any major university master's program in the country. Melissa Korn, higher education reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for how graduate students are now accruing more debt than undergrads and are asking administrators for more financial aid. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. I do believe the nation was quite taken with the control that the guardianship and conservatorship process has on far too many Americans. The very first witness before the Judiciary Committee should be Britney Spears. Joining us now is Victoria Colliver, California healthcare reporter at Politico. Thanks for joining us, Victoria. Thank you for having me. I wanted to talk a little bit about the Free Britney movement. It's got a lot of play after she appealed in open court last month to end her conservatorship. You know, it was very compelling testimony. The first time we were able to hear directly from Britney Spears herself. And, uh, you know, it really moved a lot of people, opened a lot of people's eyes to what was happening to her. You know, it had been in the news for a while, but nobody really knows until you hear directly from that person. And right now what we're seeing is kind of this uh, groundswell of support for her. And in a lot of cases, uh, we're hearing from a lot of different lawmakers from varying ideologies on all of this, looking to do more on conservatorships or looking more into them at least. Uh, So, Victoria, tell us what we're seeing out there. Yes, it's a really, talk about strange bedfellows. We have like Ted Cruz and Elizabeth Warren agreeing, or at least in concept, on something. That is quite a feat here. But I I think what really resonates here is here's this young, successful woman who has been able to perform and conduct herself through a number of years. And she's been under this legal guardianship for 13 years. And I, I think that makes people wonder, like, if someone like Britney Spears can't break free or of this type of arrangement, what hope is there for the rest of us? And it really sheds a light on the potential of, you know, abuse for a lot of other people with this. There was a lawmaker that said she was a voice for the voiceless. And in, in that sense, it definitely rings true. If somebody so famous and successful, this is happening to her. I mean, obviously, other people that can't speak up for themselves or maybe someone's not willing to pay attention to them. This is definitely going on for them. So briefly, before we get into kind of what the federal government can do and then what states can do, because this is largely a state matter, what is the allure for each side of the political spectrum on this? Well, I believe that, um, you know, some people look at this as, like, for example, California, I think this is a surprise that our laws are so outdated because we see of ourselves as kind of progressive and, you know, into people's freedom. So that kind of 
leads to the progressive side where people think, you know, individuals should be, have a right to control their body, their reproductive health, all sorts of aspects. I mean, she was talking about how she can't even ride in the car with her boyfriend, things like that. And then you have the other side, the more libertarian side, who looks at this also as a freedom issue, just from a slightly different political spectrum there. But it still hits on all that idea that here we are in this country, we're supposed to be free, but then there's a situation in which people can be under these conservatorships and that can't make basic decisions about their lives. So on I the think federal, that cuts across. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Uh, and so on the federal level, you know, not much can be due when it comes to something like this, which is happening specifically in California. But what are lawmakers trying to do there? What are they open to doing? Um, because as I mentioned, their, their role is limited right now. Yeah, I actually was surprised. My colleagues in D.C. Has, um, did a lot of work on the what the feds can do, you know, and things like due process and kind of overarching protections the feds can step in and look at. And also just even having Congress, people at that level taking a look at that, that, you know, makes it relevant to, to the whole country and to all states. But really, I, this is largely a state issue in the sense that our conservatorships are guided by states. And like I said earlier, I think that California, I was surprised looking into this, that our laws are as outdated as they are, because we do kind of think of ourselves as a state where these types of protections would apply. But there you have it. One of the issues that as people are starting to turn some attention to it is kind of the insufficient knowledge that lawmakers themselves had about kind of the scope of this whole system and and the hard numbers that we have. I, I guess they don't really even know how many people are in these guardianships and conservatorships. So that's, Absolutely. Kind of, that's kind of one of the things that they're trying to wrap their heads around is how big is this right now? Exactly. We really don't know. We don't know on a federal level. We don't know a state level. We have much better idea like what's going on in our prison system, things like that. We have no idea that, well, we have some idea, but it's just not very accurate. Some of the reporting from the counties to the states to whatnot, there's just a lot of holes in that. And if you don't understand the scope of a problem, you, you really can't address it. And, you know, and of course, through the Britney situation, we're finding out a lot of things that you would think someone would know, especially someone like her, of course, who's been performing and doing things. You know, she didn't know she could petition to have this guardianship ended. She didn't know that about, um, you know, she wasn't able to pick her own legal representation. And I think that all is rather shocking to the general public. And that's the next part of this, you know, so on to California, right? Experts don't even know how many people are in conservatorships in California, but they do know that a lot of them don't know their rights. To your point right now is what you're saying is Britney Spears testified she didn't know she could petition for this stuff. And those are the legal process that she has to go through to get out of this. And she, you know, whether she wasn't informed or what, you know, she didn't know about that. So what's happening in California specifically with this? Uh, People are calling for kind of a bill of rights. So people do know what what they can do. Yeah. There's several pieces of legislation that are been going through the system because we've we've known this is a problem. I learned through this process that California has like two different types of conservatorship, one for people who have serious mental health and substance abuse disorders and can't make decisions for themselves. That's one kind. The other kind that actually Britney Spears is under is one that tends to be used for people with developmental disabilities or dementia, things like that, more organic brain disorders. And actually one's really even harder to get out of. But on the legislative side, the bill that seems to have, it has the most traction, at least going through most right now, is one that would create greater accountability, a little bit greater transparency transparency for professional conservators or fiduciaries and require them to do things like post their fees and it would give 
there are greater powers around penalties if they're not acting in the best interests of their clients and and also they would allow greater ability to investigate claims of abuse. And I think that's very important. But once again, a lot of people look at that and say, and even the author of this bill would admit, this is just a start. There's more to be done. Yeah. And as you mentioned, uh, in this kind of two-track system that California has, Britney Spears was moved from one to the other. So she kind of lost some of those protections where, as you said, the probate conservatorship can go on indefinitely. So she's kind of stuck in that moment there for now. I know she has like a, a, there's another hearing set for Wednesday. What's the next steps on all this? I believe that the hearing on Wednesday is a possibility for her in looking into being able to select her attorney and, you know, just another step in the process, but it still will go on for a while. There actually was a bill that we had in uh, this session that would have allowed conservatives to choose their own attorney. That didn't advance this time, but would, uh, I think it's coming back in January. And of course, with the attention the Britney Spears case has drawn to us, I wouldn't be surprised if we see even more pieces of legislation to fill in a lot of those holes that have been um, historically a problem in this state and around the country. Victoria Colliver, California healthcare reporter at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. We were quite surprised to see a lot of these really prestigious schools near the top of the list. And oftentimes uh, these programs were turning out students who were financially speaking worse off than those who attended similar programs at for-profit colleges. Joining us now is Melissa Korn, higher education reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Melissa. Thanks for having me on. You wrote an article about master's degrees at elite universities and how oftentimes the students in these master's programs have to take out huge federal loans. And when they finally graduate, they get their degrees, they go out into the job place and they're really not making enough money to start paying those back. You focus a lot on Columbia University and in particular students of the film program there. I mean, they're taking out huge, huge loans. And, you know, in the following two years, in some cases, they're not even able to pay back anything on the, on the principal of the loan that they even took out. So, Melissa, walk us through some of this. What are we seeing out there? So, for the first time recently, the Education Department released data on graduate debt loads and early career earnings and also their repayment progress, broken down by fields of study in particular schools. So, we could really see students in the film program are drowning in debt. They have a you know, six to one debt to earnings ratio uh, for those who borrowed at Columbia versus those at the business school. You know, it's, it, it's, uh, they, they're faring a lot better. And we could really da- dig in deep to that. So uh, my colleague Andrea Fuller and I looked at which programs had the most lopsided debt-to-earnings ratios, right, which didn't have a payoff early on in someone's career. And we were quite surprised to see a lot of these really prestigious schools near the top of the list. And oftentimes, uh, these programs were turning out students who were, financially speaking, worse off than those who attended similar programs at for-profit colleges. And I think one of the things that struck us was these are very wealthy universities, right? They have enormous endowments. They get nine-figure donations, not regularly, but they're not unheard of at these schools. And they give so much money to undergraduate financial aid, yet they really do expect their master's students to rely on federal loans to fund these very pricey programs. 
Yeah, you're looking at universities like Brown, Columbia, obviously, Cornell, Dartmouth, Harvard, a lot of these top, very elite universities. And you just mentioned it right now. They're giving a lot of financial aid to undergraduate students. In some cases, you know, they're not paying very much at all, which is great. They're still getting all their education done. But for these graduate students, they're starting to accrue the most debt now. Yeah, we've seen the kind of a flip in uh, the what the picture of student debt looks like in recent years. And, you know, graduate student loan programs are growing quickly, in part because of income-based repayment plans that allow students to pay off just a small share of their earnings each month. And if their earnings are low enough, they don't have to pay anything. And for a lot of these students, that's happening. Interest continues to accrue. So the overall loan balance actually continues to go up, even if they're making minimal payments, uh, you know, for decades. What kind of money are we seeing? How much in loans are they taking out and what are they left with? Because the numbers kind of vary, but the recurring number that I kept seeing after interest and everything was something in the range of $300,000 is the debt that these students had saddled on them. Yeah, we went into reporting the story expecting to talk to some students or graduates who had, you know, low six figures in debt, uh, maybe from undergrad and grad combined, and then very quickly realized we were uh, underestimating some of those numbers quite a bit. So there is a cap on how much students can borrow for their undergraduate programs. But at the grad school, they can borrow up to the full cost of attendance for tuition, fees, room and board, just general living expenses. And if you are in a program that's three or four or even five years long, some of these graduates I spoke with were had borrowed $200,000, dollars $350,000. It really is an you know, extraordinary amount of debt that changes the trajectory of their lives right. in terms of what they can do, what they feel they can invest in, you know, if they think it's you know, okay for them to get married and have kids. So some of what we're seeing is two years after they've graduated, they're not making enough money to pay some of this back. I mean, what do these universities say about, you know, job placement programs? Are the job are the jobs they're being placed in just not good enough or, or how does that work? Because especially in the film industry, even if you're graduating from something as prestigious as this, you still got to kind of have to start at the bottom in the middle somewhere and work your way up. So it'll it'll take time to make that top dollar. But what do they say as far as those job placement programs? Absolutely. So the schools say, you know, one of the one of their main criticisms of this analysis that we did on the education department data is that the data only show what happens two years out. And in a lot of these fields, as you said, it takes a while to kind of get get your footing and start earning more. Uh, so maybe the prospects look a little different five years or 10 years or 20 years out. And they very well might. We just don't know yet. And frankly, a lot of the schools don't know either because they don't always track their graduates in a really meaningful, uh, any sort of sci- scientific way. They might hear some uh, some really good stories out of the most successful grads, but they don't know uh, in a lot of cases that you know X percent of graduates uh, are earning this amount 10 years out. They just don't have it. The education department, you know, collected the numbers for two years out. It's a, it's a bit trailing. So we'll, you know, start to see the longer term salaries in the next five or so years. But we don't know and right. the schools don't necessarily know where those grads are going and whether the picture does look a little brighter once for the grads once they're further out. But there are some fields where they're just, they're not going to see their earnings increase by 50 or 100 percent, you know, social work, occupational therapy, these fields don't earn a ton of money 
really ever in that career. You spoke to a number of students in the program, out out of the program already that have already graduated and, you know, they have all this debt. Uh, what have they said for themselves? Uh, how do they feel about it? And, and what are they doing for work right now? Because as we mentioned, you know, some of them are not making enough to even start paying that back yet. Yeah, so I focused a lot on the film MFA program at Columbia. I spoke to dozens of students in other programs across Columbia and elsewhere as well. But, you know, a lot of them say, listen, this number is kind of embarrassing or more than kind of, you know, there's some shame involved in it of, you know, I got myself into this situation uh, and this will haunt me for the rest of my life. There's ownership of it, not saying, you know, I was duped necessarily, but they do think that the school could have supported them more given how wealthy the school was or is. Um, They also say that there's a a lot of blame to go around, whether it's the federal government for not capping loans, whether it's the school for setting prices the way they do and the school for not providing more scholarships. But ultimately they say, you know, this is my, this is my debt. A lot of them don't really expect to ever be able to pay it off. Uh, They're in, in these income-based repayment plans and the debt will eventually be forgiven, you know, 20 and 25 years later, but that's still, you know, a good chunk of their adult lives with this hanging over them. And that, that debt that gets forgiven, that goes on to taxpayers, right? Well, so the debt that is forgiven uh, is taxed as income for the borrower, for the graduate. And then, right. The, that money doesn't just disappear. Uh, so yeah, essentially taxpayers are on the hook for many, many, many billions of dollars ultimately. And so what do administrators at these universities and, and part of these programs, leaders in these programs, you know, what do they say uh, about how to respond to this? Because you mentioned that there was numerous letters and, and, uh, and groups that were writing to them, telling them, hey, we need more help in the financial aid part of this stuff. How do they respond to all of that? Yeah, so we had a lot of instances where these complaints were, if not dismissed, then not uh, addressed immediately and taken super seriously. So uh, there were letters and emails that went just unanswered by the president's office, uh, meetings with the dean that you know students say just didn't really yield that much in the way of results. And you know, I spoke with the president of Columbia, I spoke with a number of administrators there, and they say, yes, graduate students need more financial aid, but we can't afford to give it to them right now. The defense from Columbia, from a number of those administrators was, yes, we're a wealthy school, uh, but we're not as wealthy as uh, some other schools on a per-student basis. So we don't just, we can't just throw tens of millions of dollars at these students and fix the problem. We've got to raise new money for it. So they are, they just did start a new fundraising campaign for this purpose, uh, for financial aid across the university. But we don't know yet how much is going to go to master's students. Yeah. Wow. I mean, that's just a tough position to be in. You want to continue your education and put yourself in the best foot possible. But yeah, coming out of these programs, you're saddled with so much debt. It can seem prohibitive to do anything after that, as you mentioned, some of those students feeling so. Yeah, we'll keep looking at, out for this and seeing what happens if the situation changes. But, you know, it's not just the film program at Columbia. You know, this is happening with a lot of different master's programs across the country. So we'll keep an eye out for all of that. Melissa Korn, higher education reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. 
that's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.